0: Following well and following instructions isn't always that straightforward. You will, at some point in the near future, if you don't have one already, get a learner's permit and a driver's license, and then you'll be forced to deal with things like this. You'll be driving and trying to figure out whether or not you can park at a certain place, and then you'll have to learn how to interpret hieroglyphics to figure out whether or not there is an ability for you to park there or not. It's challenging because this is actually that's, that's an actual sign. I'm pretty sure in L.A. This is definitely an L.A. sign. Here's another one. Uh, you can park between this day and this day if the moon is in a certain quadrant of the sky. And if, if there's not a tow truck, I don't know. I can't interpret that stuff. Following instructions, and in particular government instructions, are not always that easy to do. In fact, if we want to get honest for a second, following instructions well is not something that's really common sense. It takes a little bit of knowledge and a whole deal of wisdom to follow instructions well. You might say to yourself, but Pastor Rod, I want to be a baker. I'm not going to need to follow instructions that well. Well, let me show you one area where following instructions as a baker is not always straightforward either. Happy birthday. The picture is on the flash drive. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's not what they meant when they said, put happy birthday. The picture is on the flash drive. Um, or how about this one? Uh, one baker heard that the person say, thanks for a great year in purple. And so, of course, that's what they did. They put thanks for a great year in purple. <laughs> makes sense, right? That makes sense. This last one's my favorite. Mom goes to the baker and says, here's a picture of my daughter. Uh, I want you to put congratulations, whatever her name is, and then I want you to put a graduation cap, draw a graduation cap on top of her head. And so that's what they tried to do. Instead of a graduation cap... <laughs> Apparently, in the mind of the baker, the graduation cat made more sense. So this year, True North, when seniors graduate, we're going to give every one of you a cat. Graduation cat. Because that apparently is a thing. Graduation cat. As I said, following directions well is a learned skill. It's not something always totally automatic. And that's where if you have, okay, so let me just throw some people out. If you have a parent or a coach or a boss or anyone who's over you in any way, you're going to have to learn to distinguish between graduation cap and graduation cat. You're going to have to learn how to hear and hear well. And that key difference between you and mostly anyone else, if you learn that distinction, you will be such a better responder, such a better follower. In fact, following well is a lot like leading well. Some of it's built into your DNA, but a lot of it is trained and learned. This morning, God has not left us with simply guessing and figuring it out. He's given us his word in a way that's so clear and so practical and so common sense. And let me tell you now, if you hear this sermon and you follow it, you apply this, this is immediately applicable to you. And not only that, it is massively beneficial to you. As a young person, this is your bread and butter. You have so many leaders and so many people that are over you that if you get this figured out now, you will be in such a better position among your peers, head and shoulders above them. So with that said... Let's jump into the book of Ephesians yet again. We're picking up on the next five verses that we, uh, we started last week. Last week we looked at your parents, and we said you got to obey and honor your parents. And now we're looking at the next few verses that talk about how to follow and obey earthly masters, people that are above you in any sense. And as your, as your uh, bulletin says there, it's, it's looking at supervisors, and I said in there, how to bring home more bacon. And that's because when you learn how to follow your supervisors well, this immediately benefits you. This is one of the most self-interested sermons you can listen to. Because God is wise and God knows what he's doing, this is something that if you listen to will be of enormous benefit to you personally. Take a look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5. We'll read it all together. And then we'll jump back into this here. Ephesians 6 verse 5. It says, bondservants. servants... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free turns his attention now to masters, and he says, masters, overlords, teachers, bosses, supervisors, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there, that there is no partiality with him. This These short five verses have contained in them a wealth of information for you this morning, and what you're going to do with this God willing, is listen and apply. Massively important. It starts out with understanding what your role is. And again, as I made mention last week, your role at this point is to learn how to submit well. In fact, let's talk about that when it looks at the beginning of the verse here. Bondservants. Bondservants. And it's important that you know that what's underlying that word there, bondservants, is the Greek word doulos. It looks like this in English. Doulos. Now, if you know your Bible, or if you've ever been to a sermon that has ever come across the word doulos, you know that one of the more literal ways we translate that word is slave. That's right. Very good. Good listening. The word is Slave. And so you'll notice that it's contrasted right right below that with the word masters. And so you have a slave and master relationship here. Now, immediately, if you're a thinking individual, you might start saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, we're talking about slavery. My friends and my critical friends have always said, doesn't the Bible support slavery? And it's kind of the question that you might ask when someone says to you, well, uh, okay, does baptism save you? And then your answer is, which one? Uh, does the Bible promote slavery? And then you might say, well, which, which one? Is, what kind of slave are you referring to? Because this slavery is not the kind of slavery that you and I know as the African-American slave trade. The slavery that's happening here in the first century is very different. It's probably closer to an employee-employer relationship and not so much what you and I noticed, where black people were transported across the Atlantic and treated as, uh, as chattel, as, as property, as, as people to be abused and, and inhumanely treated. What's happening here is different uh, because what Paul does is he's speaking into it, He's speaking about a real cultural reality that perhaps in times were abusive, and not to say that people didn't abuse the the slave-master relationship, but he is saying at the same time, uh, the roles that are appropriated here are important. Observe them. Obey them. You should also know that slaves in the first century were treated uh, treated in ways that were, again, closer to employee-employer relationships, where they could be uh, physicians. They could be philosophers. They had various roles within society, and some of them very important people. So having a slave title isn't necessarily the same thing as being an African American and the Bible supporting that kind of slavery. With that said, when we look at this here for us, I want you to see these two terms, masters and bondservants, in their more technical sense, over, overlords, earthly masters, and responders, followers, slaves. So we got to look at these senses and say, okay, what can we learn from this? This is talking about a first central reality. How does it work for us? Well, it's easy. We've got to see this as, as we would if we were serving and supporting anybody. Our role here as bond servants is saying, okay, how is a bond servant res, we're supposed to respond to a master? How does someone who's in a lower position of authority follow someone who's in a higher position of authority? Now, that really kind of levels the field for us. We're now taking this out of its first century context and saying, okay, we're not just talking about slaves and masters now, we're talking about people with higher authority and people with lower authority. You all now automatically see, okay, this is applicable to me immediately. What's the relationship look like? Well, you can see here, he's saying, and this is the same word that we saw last week, the word is obey. Bond young people, obey your earthly masters and do it in a certain way too. Don't just obey, obey with a certain attitude or with a certain manner of, of life. Obey with fear and trembling. That's interesting. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. But I think in the, at the heart of it here, what you need to see is in this text, you have the foundation of how God intends authority to work in society. And this doesn't change. The slave trade changed. The, the, the way that we think about our relationships with masters changed. But the fact that God wants us to obey, that doesn't change. And the fact that God wants us to obey in a certain way, that doesn't change. The attitude you should have when it comes to anyone who is above you in authority, quite simply put, is to highly esteem them. Point number one, highly esteem your earthly bosses. I think that's one of the driving points that Paul is getting at, and this is something that transcends every culture at every time. Highly esteeming your earthly bosses. That doesn't change. In the olden days, it was customary, and I guess it still kind of happens today, it was customary to stand up when a woman enters the room. Um... Gal walks in, if you're sitting down, you're supposed to stand up, and then when she sits down, then you can sit down, if you're a guy. If she gets up to go to the bathroom, you have to get up too, and then she walks out, and then you can sit back down again. When she comes back, you have to stand back up, and then she sits down and use it. Now, It was a great exercise, but totally, to- totally something that is foreign to us today, because we don't think like that anymore. The type of honor, gentlemanly, uh, ch- chivalry type response is-, is long gone. In fact, quick poll. Guys, how many of you have ever stood up for a girl who enters the room? look around nobody nobody girls this question's for you how many of you would appreciate in respect if a guy stood up when you entered the room does that even matter to you a couple okay five of you guys take notice take notice if you're looking to date her that's how you do it stand up when she walks in <laughs> The concept is foreign to us because we don't think that way anymore. And that's important for you to recognize because culturally speaking, you and I live in a culture where that kind of honor and esteem is not something we we esteem. We don't esteem that. And that's important because God loves to regard high esteem. God loves to esteem high esteem. God is about honoring and respecting authority because he's the one behind authority. And in fact, did you know that the Bible actually says to stand up when people enter a room? Did you know that it says that? You didn't know that, did you? unless you've been reading DBR, in which case you would have come across Leviticus 19.32. Leviticus 19.32. It says to enter, or when, when, when this person enters the room, you're supposed to stand. You ready for it? Listen to this. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. What, what we have here, guys, is when Jess Williams enters the room, you have to stand up. When a gray headed person. Okay, so what's happening here is God is showing that He has high regard for those kinds of people. He he is all about honoring honorable people. And in fact, the fact that they're in a position of honor means that we should do that. Times and customs change, and we don't do that. But the fact that the principle remains, that doesn't change. So what we have to do then is really understand this in a cultural sense, uh, but for today. So we talked about highly esteeming your earthly bosses. First and foremost, let's understand who those bosses are. Let's be clear in all of our minds. When I say honor or highly esteem your earthly bosses, what am I talking about? What do I think God has in mind here? Well, again, he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. The, the two words in the Greek that underlie that is that the first word that talks about earthly is sarks, refers to the flesh. And so anyone who has, anyone who has a body, you have sarks, you have flesh. The word for master is the word that we would use for kurios, or the word that we would use for Lord. So it's someone in your life who has, uh, who has authority over you, your person, It's not necessarily your master, as in your slave driver. It's anyone in your life who has a position authority over you. Expand your idea of who earthly bosses are. So I think you could say that really what that includes. At the very least, let's go through a list here. First and foremost, who does, who does that imply to? It applies to your bosses. If you work at In-N-Out, or you work at Chick-fil-A, or if you work at the Superior McDonald's, all of those things are, are there's places where, I'm just kidding, that's, that's not the case. Um, all of those places, they have bosses, and you're supposed to submit to them, honor them, obey them. Well, how about this? Who else is an earthly boss for you? We talked about this last week, but let me just repeat it. Your parents, aside from God, your parents have the highest authority in your life. You may think you do. You don't. Aside from God, your parents have the highest authority in your life. And that happens all the way up until you get out from under their jurisdiction. So if you live under the roof of your parent, if you eat their food, if you wear the clothes they buy you, if you, if you let them wash your clothes still, I think your parents still have a say in a lot of what you do, if not most of what you do relationship, of course, changes as you get older. But understand, your parents are still the highest authority in your life, aside from God himself. Who else applies? Teachers. Teachers are a type of earthly master that assign work to you. They expect you to do the work well, and then you turn the work in and you ask for their approval, right? They give you a grade and you hope that the grade is good. But they are a type of earthly master that have an expectation of you. They have a reasonable sense of expectation that you're going to do what they say. They derive their authority from this, your parents. Your parents essentially say, I am giving the school and the administration and your teacher's authority over your life to teach and train my kid. And so your teachers, whenever they tell you to do something, it's essentially akin to your parents saying, I want you to do this. Again, unless it violates God's ultimate commands. We talked about that last week. If It violates God's word. We have an ability to step back and say, I'm not sure I can obey that. But your teachers are earthly bosses that that receive their authority from your parents. If your parents put you in school, your teachers are essentially representing your parents. Your teachers are an earthly boss. Include them as you think about this. Here's another one. Your coaches, you willingly sign up to have your coach force you to run laps. Your coach then tells you to you know, pick up this weight, to smack that thing, or to throw the ball, or whatever your coach has to do. <laughs> um, your coach tells you to do those things. And guess what? You gave me authority to do that. Well, you and your parents. You sign up and t- tell your coach, hey, I want you to abuse me and tell me to, to run laps and to make me throw up when I'm, I'm not feeling good you do that but your coach is a type of earthly boss that you hand over authority for to tell you what to do with your body let me throw one more at you another earthly boss that you might not think of your ministry leaders if you've ever worked in awana <laughs> I heard a clapping back there <laughs> your ministry leaders which would include your small group leaders um awana if you've ever served an edge if you've ever served an edge jamie pence is your earthly master. In fact, you should call her Jamie Pence, my earthly master from henceforth. <laughs> if you've ever worked on the worship team or if you've ever served on the worship team, or if it's on the True North worship team, then Ian Pence might have been your master or Jonah Francisco might have been your master or Joseph Lopez might have been your master. These are the kinds of things that you need to think about when you start thinking about earthly masters, people that have any type of authority over you. This is the way to see it in principle. Yeah, we're not going to say you're slave. I get that. And you're not. But you are a child of God, ideally, hopefully, and if if you are, this is the expectation that God has of you to identify who your earthly bosses are and say, I want to willingly submit to their leadership. Expand your idea, your understanding of who your earthly bosses are. Step two, and here's the moneymaker. Identify the characteristics of high esteem. We said culturally, we're not into esteeming a lot of people. We're not into standing up when girls walk, walk in the room or when old people walk in the room. But this is where we distinguish ourselves as Christians. Paul gave two commands. He said, obey. He says, and obey in this way. If you're a bondservant, if you have an earthly master, you are to hupakuo. The word literally has two Greek words. Uh, hupa, which means uh, under or below. We get the words hypodermic or hypothermia from that. Hypo, "hoopo," Hupo, under, and akuo. Do two, those two things together. Akuo means to listen to listen under somebody. And so what you're literally doing when you're obeying someone is underneath them, you're listening to what they say. It's not referring to necessarily your worth as a human being, but your position. So whenever you're obeying someone, you're saying you have authority, I, I don't, uh, I'm going to listen underneath you. Hupakuo. That's what's happening here. And that's the same word that's used when the apostles describe Jesus. He says, what sort of man is this that even the winds and seas obey him? How did the wind and sea obey him? Did Jesus plead with the wind of sea to stop, you know, being a being turmoil? No, no. He just said, peace, be still. And it stopped. Uh, the word is also used when it says of Jesus, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So quite simply, responding immediately to the commands of an authority is really what, what it means to hupakuo, to hear and to respond, to obey. What that, I think that you could take from that is really, if you're going to do this right, it means being swift in your action. Hearing someone give commands and saying, dude, I'm doing it. You're not lingering. You're not waiting. You're just, you're doing exactly what you were told and following the heart of the, 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 of the command too. not just doing it and going through the motions, but following the heart of the command, identifying the characteristics of high esteem. First of all, swift action. You're not belaying. You're not dragging your feet. When someone tells you to do something, you're doing it because you're supposed to do it. And this is what's good. But not only that, uh, the identity of characteristics of high esteem is also a stellar attitude. That's what he, when he says, with fear and trembling, obey with fear and trembling. Think about that. If you know your Bible, if you know your Bible, you know that the, the words fear and trembling put together, phabos and tramos, when those two words are put together, normally, they're in the context of fear and trembling beneath who? Take a guess. God. Fear and trembling before God. Paul used that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, when he said, work out your own salvation with what? Fabos and traumas, fear and trembling, because it's God who's working in you. The fear and trembling happens when you come in contact with the reality of God being near you. There's a And the word trembling literally means like quaking, shaking. There's a sense of trepidation. Fear can can convey reverence. But it does have a sense of like, okay, you're strong, I'm not. You're powerful, I'm not. Why that word? Why those two words? Here's why I think Paul uses fear and trembling in relationship to earthly masters. It's because they represent God's authority. Your earthly masters represent and mediate God's authority in your life. It's not because your gym coach is all that intimidating. I know one of the coaches, one of them is one of our leaders. He's not that intimidating. He's not an intimidating coach. But according to scripture, you should have the kind of attitude toward them that is fear and trembling because you have a respect for God. You recognize that God has divested his authority and his power in smaller measure in these earthly masters. And then your job then is to say, okay, you're the boss. I'm not, I'm going to step back and let you be God. Well, or let you be the boss. Which means at the very least, your attitude toward your earthly master should be stellar. And let me tell you, if this is you, if you're the kind of person that has swift action and a stellar attitude, you will set yourself apart from every one of your peers. Because again, this is not the culture we're in. This is the kind of culture that the Bible says is the right thing to do. Stellar attitude. Okay. Laying the groundwork. Earthly bosses, high esteem, swift action, stellar attitude. There's more to this. There's more because what's, what Paul's about to say now is that it's not enough just to do to go through the motions. Your swift action is stellar attitude. He's now going to expand upon specifically stellar attitude. Here's what that looks like. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 together. As he explains to you and me what it looks like to have that kind of stellar attitude in relationship to your earthly bosses. Here's what it says. Bond servants, let's continue from the beginning of verse 5. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And now he goes on to a list. This is a very Pauline sentence. You'll notice that there's a lot of of, uh, commas and no periods in there. (laughs) That's Paul. The Apostle Paul loves to create sentences like that. And so we're going to break this down. But here's what he says. Fear and trembling. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart. The kind of heart that you have you would have if you were serving Christ himself. Verse six, not by way of eye service, but as, or as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. The quality of your work, the quality of your work should fit that criteria in any arena of your life. Any arena of your life, you should be able to say, that's a characteristic of how I work for people because I'm offering my work ultimately to God. And if you do this young person, let me tell you one thing, this is going to be exhausting, right? If you look at that list and you say, okay, if I have to do all that, to be aware and intentional about all the things that I'm doing, this is going to be exhausting for you. Well, that's okay. In fact, you should expect your work to be exhausting. If you're doing work the right way, if you're doing it the right way, your work will be exhausting. And I'm choosing that word very deliberately Because it's possible for some people to work and just get along without actually doing the work. They're going through the motions and they're being bad employees by simply just saying, okay, I'm just going to do what I got to do, but I'm not going to give my best effort. I'm not going to give my my hardest effort. I had three jobs in high school. My first job was selling incense. I was good at it. That's not a joke. (laughs) My second job was working in the snack bar um, at, at my high school. I wasn't as good at that, but I did a fine job. My third job was working at McDonald's. I was a rock star at McDonald's. Um, I had Friday and Saturday shift. Friday after school, all the way up until closing, and then Saturday I did the, like the eight hours between, I don't know, four and 12 or whatever it was. When I go home... I would be exhausted my back would hurt my feet would hurt because the boots that they gave me weren't super supportive Uh, the hat that i had to wear made me look like a dork and so my hair would be all funny and i look like an idiot i thought but i i I went home and i smelled like fry grease because they made me i was the guy that they made clean the fry grease machine um or the, the machine that just you don't know how this works but there's a fry machine at mcdonald's does anyone work at McDonald's? There's a frying machine at McDonald's that distributes fries in the basket. You take the basket, you put it in the fryer and then you start the timer and then go on from there. That machine you're dumping uh, pre <laughs> pre cooked fries into. And so it sorts the fries and it kind of moves them through this crank. And that crank plays them in the back or puts them in the basket. Someone's got to clean the machine. Yours truly got to clean that machine all the time. And what, what accumulates in the conveyor of that machine are chunks of thick, disgusting grease. And so I'd have to clean it, and when you're cleaning the grease, you have to use, you have to take care because if you can it can easily become like a horrendous experience. You're cleaning it like splashing on your face and on your arms and on your shirt, and so you're just getting covered with this disgusting grease. I'd go home smelling like that, and I would hate it. And I knew <laughs> when I went home once, I'm like, I gotta get an education. I can't work at McDonald's for the rest of my life. Not that hey, if you do that, I'm not, it's not it's not the worst thing in the world, but but at the end of the day, I was exhausted. I was tired. But let me tell you, that feeling was one of the best feelings in the world. Going to bed, with, a, with knowing that I gave my best effort. My pastor likes to say, and you're a pastor, work is hard. And I would add, hard work is hard work. Or work is work, rather. Sorry, work is work, and hard work is hard work it's not easy to work well and in fact if you're going to work well you should expect your body to respond to that and say this i i'm I'm done i'm exhausted i'm pushed to the brink of what i'm capable of because look at this list again look at this list well, In fact, you know, let's do that. Let's work through this list. This is your work ethic. When it comes to highly esteeming your earthly bosses, this is, the, this is the list that you should be going through. When it says, okay, it's time to work in my ministry, it's time to work uh, in the worship team, it's time to mow the lawn, it's time to set up the chairs, it's time to go and flip burgers, whatever it is that you're working for, this is the way it should look. Your work should be first and foremost wholehearted, When Paul says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, he's using a word that could mean double-minded or duplicitous. Uh, Single-mindedness is what he's looking for, a sincere heart, a heart that's not divided and saying, I'm just pretending to do this. It's a a sense of being a genuine and honest worker. You're not pretending to work while actually chilling, okay? You're not pretending to, to look busy, this kind of happens when in school, the teacher looks your direction, and if you've been goofing off, you pretend like, oh, I was just, I was just doing this thing over here. Like, it, we, we do that. We've done that. In the workplace, it's easy to know how to skate by the, 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 the boss. In fact, uh, one of my jobs, I won't tell you which one, um, there was a way where, well, I guess I could tell you this much. Uh, there's a computer program that you could put on your screen that made it look like you were working on an Excel spreadsheet, but behind it was a game. I don't know how they did it, but uh, you, could, you, you hit a button, and it, poof, like the, the Excel spreadsheet would show up on your screen, so I could look like, oh, I'm just I'm working on an Excel spreadsheet. As long as I didn't look too closely, um, it, it, was, it was believable. But that's sinful, because I'm, I'm stealing from the company if I'm using that, right? If I'm only pretending to work, and I'm not wholeheartedly giving my best effort, then I'm not working with a sincere heart. In fact, I'm being very deceptive. I'm being very insincere in my work. And at that point, I'm stealing from the company. Your work should be wholehearted. Your work should also be Christ-oriented. Paul says it's not only with a sincere heart, but serving with a sincere heart as you would serve sincerely Christ. Bible rightly assumes that if Christ were physically present and asking you to do something, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that all of us would suddenly become Chick Fil A employees and be like, "It would be my honor. It'd be my pleasure." Right away, sir. You know, you got it, Lord. The Bible expects us to respond to God with that kind of, or to respond to our bosses with that kind of dedication. The sincere heart that would be appropriated to Christ. He's saying, use that now with your bosses, with your teachers, with your parents. My boss, whenever he calls me, I try to answer on the first ring. Like, boom, this pastor Robs up. out, you know? If he's texting me, I try to text back like right away. Sometimes I text back the answer before he's even done typing, like little chat bubbles, like and boom, yes. you know. I, or, or if he comes into my office, like I'm stopping whatever I'm doing, looking his direction, and I'm saying, hey, what do you want? I'm your man. If he asks me to do things that I think I'm not well-suited for, I'll do it anyway and say, you got it. I'm going to do the best job possible. Um, if, if he wants me to, to stay late, to come early, to whatever, I'm 100% in because he's my boss. And even more than that, I respect him and I, and I love my, my boss. But that's the kind of responsiveness and, and respect that God expects to have from all of us. And not just for your pastors or people immediately that you can think of. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Romans 13 1. There is no authority except from, except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Every authority in your life, young person, think about this, think about that, okay? Stop and think, stop writing, think. Every authority in your life is from God. Your parents are God's authority. Your small group leaders are God's authority. Yes, even our president is God's authority. Vladimir Putin is God's authority. Kim Jong-un is God's authority. We'll talk about the tension you're probably feeling and thinking, okay, well, why would God put up these terrible leaders if some, some of them are terrible? Um, if if he's good. And we'll talk about that. But recognize, according to Romans 13:1, there is no authority except from God, which means that every time you serve somebody, here's, here's, here's how I want you to think about this: your work is Worship. Your work is worship. In every venue that you're serving, your work is worship, which is why Paul can say, serve with a sincere heart as you would Christ, because your work is worship. It's not just singing the songs with Nathan or Ian or Jonah, it's about worshiping God with your life. Your work is worship. All authorities so long as they're not calling us to sin. So your work should be wholehearted. It should be Christ-oriented. It should also be not only for show. That's what Paul identifies here. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleases. We shouldn't serve in that way. That's fake work. I used to have a friend at one of my old businesses that would complain about everything about the company. But interestingly, whenever the boss was around, they would be the biggest pro person for the company. Oh, I love that policy. I love that thing that we do. This is the best thing ever. But behind closed doors, they would be like, stupid. Who would even do this? They would mock and complain and and bicker and whine. And I thought that's exactly what Scripture is talking about here. Because when the boss is around, it's like, well, now I'm a now I'm a fan of the company. Now I really love this thing. Now I really enjoy the thing that we do here. That's eye service. That's pretending. That's making an impact without having the reality there. It's only it's it's manipulation. It's hypocrisy. It's deception, seeking only to make an impression. Guys, this is one of the big ones that I think could be a trouble for you because you're smart enough to know when an authority is asking you for something and they have an answer in mind. So you give them the answer that they want, but not the answer that you're thinking. Happens a lot with your parents, right? Your parents are asking you a question and it may or may not be a leading question, but you know where they're wanting you to go with that. So you tell them, oh yeah, you know, this thing, whatever it is. You're you're giving them, you're placating them, giving them the answer they want. That's people pleasing. That's eye service. Not that you'd be disrespectful. but It doesn't mean you should be honest. This also happens um, with homework assignments. Teacher gives you an assignment that says reflect and consider the answer to da-da-da-da. You know, okay, you reflect and consider enough, but you put out an answer that you know this is what she wants. This is what he wants. Let me just write that down real quick and just turn it in. Not people-pleasing. Not working by way of eye service means you're not working differently when your boss is around or isn't around. If your work is not the same, whether the boss is there or isn't there, you're probably not working well. This person also does the minimum to get by. They leave anything undone that the boss wouldn't notice. At McDonald's, I used to work with this other guy. That would He and I would trade off doing bathroom duty. Um, you ever seen a bathroom at McDonald's? Some of them could be really scary, terrifying. In fact, there has been times when I walk into the bathroom, I think, how on earth did you, how did that happen? <laughs> like, where did that, I even, I'm impressed that you were able to do that. <laughs> but someone had to clean that, right? And so enter me and this guy. We'd switch off at the end of the night, closing shift, um, you know, rock, paper, scissor, and then the next guy would go the next night. I would go in there, and I would begrudgingly, but I would completely clean the bathroom. I'd clean the behind the toilet, clean the poop stains all over and up there. I would, I would do it. And by the way, girls' bathrooms weren't much better, guys. Sometimes they were worse. I'm just saying. Sometimes the girls' bathroom was just terrifying. But cleaning the bathrooms was a simple but easy illustration. This guy, though, he would go in there, and he would not see the poop stains. <laughs> and he would let me clean them up. I'd like, dude, did you, did you not see? Oh, how long has that been? I did, that must not have been there when I went in there. Like, dude, Baloney! You know, you know you saw it. I get mad at that because I'd be like, dude, you're making me clean up after you're a mess. That's being a lazy worker. That's working only for show. You're cleaning enough that it'd be acceptable where a parent, not okay, so my kids, they know how to clean their room in a way that I'm like, I'm not going to say anything about it, but it's not the way I want it. We can do the same thing in our workplaces. We clean it enough. We, we do work enough to make it appear like, oh, that's, that's good enough where the boss isn't going to get mad, but that's not the way God wants to work. God wants us not to work as people, please. Not only that, let's keep going here. Uh, our work should be as representatives of Christ, as bondservants of Christ. So Paul says you should be working in such a way that your work represents Jesus. And point B, I said you're working for Christ and therefore your work is worship. But in this point, you need to see that your work is also witness. Your work is also witness. People watch you, they see how you work, and they're going to judge you for that. For better or for worse. You're either going to make Christ look great because of your work ethic, or you're going to make Christ look terrible because you're cutting corners. I used to work with a Jehovah's Witness who would sit across from me. And I was always aware that both of us were basically, we we both knew she she was a J-dub, I was a Christian, and so we would always be aware of each other's working habits. And so whenever she was around, I'd be especially attentive, like, okay, am I doing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? Am I cutting corners in any way? Because I knew she was judging me. And the same thing is, I would judge her too. Like, does she really believe what she's saying? How does she work in? Does she treat people the right way? Um, All of us have an internal radar that judges people's words and actions to see if they match. And what this is calling us to do is to be sure that our work represents Jesus. Everyone who knows you, if they know you're a Christian, they're they're looking. Do your words match your life? should be representing Christ with how we work. Not only that, our work should be enthusiastic, doing the will of God from the heart. It's possible to work and get the job done, but to do it in such a way that it doesn't doesn't have the same kind of like, oh, that that wasn't enjoyable. It It was begrudging. It was implying that you can work and do God's will in a way that doesn't please him, doesn't honor him, if it's not enthusiastic, if it's not done with a certain sense of passion. You don't have to become Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs whistling while you work. But there is a sense in which you should be uh, excited to serve God. Whatever position you have in life, whether it's cleaning the toilets at McDonald's or flipping the burgers at In-N-Out, everything that you do serves a purpose. God has given dignity to work of all styles. That's great news. That means whether you're the garbage man or the plumber or the CEO of... Amazon, your work is useful and a benefit to society and you should not look down upon it. You should be enthusiastic about it. Doing the will of God from the heart. Taking pleasure in serving God in your home, your work, your school and not seeing that as unspiritual but the fruit of true spirituality. Being enthusiastic and lastly being unreserved. Rendering service with the will, As to the Lord and not to man. The parallel text for Ephesians six is Colossians three twenty-two through twenty-five, I believe. In the parallel text, Colossians three twenty-three says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That word heartily is really the parallel of goodwill. In Ephesians six verse seven. And what it means to convey is working from the center of your person. The word behind it is suke which is the word for soul. It's the seat and the center of the inner human life. So basically, the thing that drives you, you should be putting that thing forward every time you work, which means that your work should be, in a sense, every time you put your hand to the plow, every time you pull out the keyboard to work, every time you're tasked with an assignment to do, your work should not be half-hearted. It should not be in a sense where like, oh, I'm going to go out to the movies later with my friends. Let me only serve 25%. I'm going to gauge my energy so that I have plenty of energy tonight later on when I'm going to go hang out. No, the kind of work that God expects of us is to render service with a goodwill. That word goodwill, again, means all of us, the whole person. It's beneficial to people. It's a, it's a benefit because it's all that we have to give. We're not cutting corners because Christ didn't cut corners with us how would you feel if Jesus came to earth and instead of dying on the cross for our sins, he said, you know what, I've, I've, done, the, I've done the first part really well. I'm going to go back to heaven now. I'm good. Not about that cross life. You and I would have no salvation. And So when we serve, Jesus expects that we would serve unreservedly in the same way that Jesus served you. If you're going to do this, it's going to cost you a lot. It's going to take a lot of energy. How do we do it well? Well, it really depends on where we fix our attention. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul said, the reason that we do this is that we know. Know something. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that, again, knowing another thing. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. That there is no partiality with him. I pointed out to you that there's two places where the knowing is a big deal. Paul offers two reasons why we work the way we do. The first reason you will notice here, look, that we will see back from the Lord. And it does not matter what status of life you have. Whether you're a CEO or whether you're the garbage man, God pays attention to your good works. We know that. That's the first thing we know. The second thing we know as he's talking to the masters now is that our master is the same person. We, we all report to the God and King, uh, King Jesus. And the reason that's important is because he says there is no partiality with him, which is to say God is absolutely fair in his judgment. And it does not matter what station of life you have. It doesn't matter if you're the slave or the free. God is a fair judge who looks at every single person individually and judges them equitably we know those two things. That's what Paul is looking at. And essentially what Paul is trying to remind his audience is that every single one of us are accountable to God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight. Guess what? You, all, you, you and I are all creatures. He says, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give an account. Psalm 44:21 21 says, God knows the secrets of the heart. Essentially, what's happening here is two major things. God, through the pen of Paul, is both encouraging you and holding you accountable. He's essentially saying, at the heart of this, you have to remember that God never forgets. Remember, God never forgets. That is awesome news, and that's a little terrifying of news. Remember that God never forgets. Have you ever heard of HSAM. It stands for Highly superior autobiographical memory. It's technically classified as a syndrome. It's not not the right way your brain is supposed to develop, but it's a pretty cool way. Here's how it works. From the earliest age that a person can remember, people with HSAM, they can remember every single detail of their life to the present moment. There are reported about 60 people on the entire planet that have this Let's just call it a gift of sorts where they can remember one lady can remember up to a week after she was born. <laughs> she said she remembers being swaddled in a pink blanket and seeing her mom and other stuff that babies do, <laughs> but she can remember all of that. Now l- let me ask you this. Let's say you have the option to have HSM. Would you want that? Would you want highly superior autobiographical memory? Some of you are saying yes. Well, the 60 people that have it will freely confess that it is awesome, it is a blessing, and it's a curse. Because they say for them, they're so able to, their their memories are so crystal clear. It's like they're looking at a videotape playing from from their own perspective. They're re-watching, re-experiencing both the best times of their lives and Sadly, the worst. They're able to see both of those things with crystal clarity. And because it's so real to their brain, they re-experience the moment afresh every time it happens. Whew, like imagine an embarrassing moment that you're having to relive over and over again. Like I don't know about you, but sometimes things happen in my life and I just constantly just turn it over. Like if I should have said that. Like I am the best, I'm the best debater after the debate's over. <laughs> like when the debate, I'm just thinking, oh, I should have said that. And then that would have stumped him and it have been great. These people, though, have the memory intact in ways that you and I probably will never experience, maybe maybe in the next life, maybe in heaven, but these people can remember and recall every single detail of their lives. Blessing and the curse, because the curse means that they're experiencing life in ways that are so painful and devastating over and over and over again, as often as they recall the memory. Humans struggle with this. HM is kind of like what God has, except God doesn't simply relive bad moments. The reason it's not good for us, I don't think this is helpful, is because Humans struggle with not, uh, no matter how many details we might have, having a perfect memory without perfect knowledge is dangerous. This is where God comes in. The perfect memory is helpful, but not if you don't have perfect knowledge because you're going to look at those from your perspective. When God steps in, he has perfect memory because he knows the end from the beginning. He doesn't just have perfect memory, he has perfect knowledge of everything. And that's comforting because that means every single thing you do, look at this, everything you do, whatever good, any good that you do, anyone does, you're going to get back from the Lord. How, okay. To, even to the smallest degree of this in Mark 9:41, he says this, Jesus said, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. How many, okay. How many of you guys are going to want it? Give me a sense here. How many of you guys are going to want it? Okay. A couple, uh, edge, edgers. Okay. A couple more. All right. Uh, have any, anyone served in the nursery first hour? Okay. A couple, every day for you change, God remembers. Every goldfish you've handed out, God remembers. Every snotty nose that you've cleaned up, God remembers. Every kid that you grab by the hand and walk them to their next classroom, God remembers. Every smallest detail of your service, God remembers. Whatever good anyone does, whatever. Down to the the smallest, if anyone gives a cup of water to you because they're a Christian. The people that are putting out the coffee and the donuts on Sunday morning, God's going to remember that. Which means there's a dignity, great dignity, for every small act of service that you perform. Which means because God never forgets, you should look forward to that reward. God's God's memory, which is unfathomably great and perfect in every way, means that all of the service that you render on his behalf will be rewarded. Your bosses may not see your good works. In fact, I know that as a parent, I often struggle to see the good things that my kids do and commend them for that. It's much easier for me to see, oh, he needs to change that. He needs to do that differently. They should have done this thing over here. It's much harder for me to say, okay, oh, great job with this, son. Good job with that. And I'm sure some of your parents might struggle with the same thing. Don't amen that. But no matter what, how weak or how imperfect your earthly bosses are, God is not imperfect. God remembers. He notices. It keeps tallying. In fact, I would encourage you from Matthew chapter 6, not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Because God never forgets, not only should you look forward to your future reward, but you should also live your life Coram Deo. Coram Deo is Latin. Um, the word Deo you probably get, right? We sing that in each else's Deo. Gloria. Okay. Um, we sing that Deo means God, you know, that much Corum Corum is, uh, literally it means before the face of. And so when we use the word Corum Deo, we usually use it in reference to in the presence of God, live your life as in the presence of God. It became popular during the reformation. Guys like Luther and Calvin would quote this and cause they were reading the Latin Vulgate Corum Deo. To live your life quorum Deo is to remember that every aspect and every detail of your life is performed as before God, as if he's watching. And that's a good thing for us because often it's when we think that we're alone or when we think no one's going to notice that we do things that we think, oh, no one's going to see this. I'm going to get away with this. That's why incognito mode is on Chrome or the uh, private mode is on the other one, Safari. Because we feel like when we're in secret that no one's going to find out that that's when we're safe. But for the Christian, the incognito mode doesn't matter. Because whether or not you know man sees my browsing history, God's right there. God knows exactly what I've browsed upon. I can clear my search history on Instagram, but God knows what I've searched for. And that doesn't change. To live your life quorum deo means to be aware that God's ever-present and watchful eye is always just as present in front of you right now as he is when you're 95 years old. At every moment of every time in your life, God is always there. And the faithful and wise and mature Christian will remember that. They won't just simply go through the motions. It's it's, it's a practice for us. We have to live our lives quorum Deo. We have to remember that in every way possible, God is active and aware. In person, if you're able to highly esteem your bosses and expect your work to be exhausting, and remember that God never forgets, those three things together will form the kind of work ethic that God will not help be able to bless. Probably. You might get shot and killed for a variety of different reasons, but as Christians, when we work this way, we're highly esteeming our bosses, we're working so hard that we know we're going to be exhausted, and we're living in such a way where we're living quorum deo, man, you will be a phenomenally... Gifted and helpful, indisposable, indispensable employee or track person or guitarist or worship leader or diaper changer or son or daughter at home. This is the heartbeat of Christianity affecting even the very work that we do, the most menial to the most significant. Not all of you guys have parents that can pay to make your way to college. You might have heard this week, that news broke of a scandal that originated in Newport Beach with a guy by the name of William Singer. William Singer ran a consulting service to get students the kind of support that they needed to get in the top tier schools. He also had a nonprofit where he would launder the money that parents would pay and that he would use to, to coach uh, to bribe coaches. Uh, according to one report, Parents would pay fifteen to seventy-five thousand dollars to either have someone take the exam on their kid's behalf or to correct it after the kid took the exam. There's another report that says that there is between six hundred thousand to two and a half million paid to guarantee admission to those schools. I know Yale was part of that. I think UCLA was thrown in there. Georgetown was put in there. And that that is fascinating. But I think the the thing that I found most interesting is the responses. You've already seen, right? There's a class action lawsuit. Students are uprising and saying, this isn't fair. You need to correct the system. It's corrupt. Uh, Another group of kids said, oh, this is a total example of white privilege. This is what's wrong with America. It's racism. Again, um, I don't don't see it. I don't get it, but okay, just go with that. The responses have been, there have been a variety of responses. Let me tell you how Christians should think about this in relation to this sermon. Thinking about our bosses and then the way that we should, the way that we should respond to these things, if you're a Christian, let me tell you this: William Singer is not going to get you in Yale if you don't belong in Yale. William Singer is not going to keep you out of Yale if God wants you in Yale. Whatever God has planned for you, the Christian can take solace in the fact that God's plan for us will be accomplished and no man's going to be able to stop that. So while we do lament and we do want to fix justice, we want to correct by by bringing justice to people like this, you and I don't start class action lawsuits. You and I don't have to complain and bicker and say, man, this is exactly what's wrong with the system, white privilege, throw it all out. You and I can say God is in control because there's no authority that exists apart from God. And yeah, this is terrible. We should fix this, but I'm not going to start a class action lawsuit. I don't need to claim white privilege because these bosses are simply bosses in the hands of God. And scripture says that God guides even kings like a stream of water in his hands. He could guide it any way he wants to. God let them get away with this. You see, the difference between the world and us young people is that we see God's authority everywhere. We don't simply see it in church right here. We see God's authority all over creation. His fingerprints are on every detail of your lives. So this week... And even now, wherever God puts you to work, the challenge for you today is to begin thinking about your work in terms not of how can I look really good, but how can I serve a really good God? When that transfer takes place in your mind, that's when things become to make sense. That's when they begin to make sense. And that's when work becomes dignified. And that's when work becomes good and godly. We can be confident in God's care for us. He's orchestrating all things for his glory and our good question is whether we will trust him enough to submit to him and the leaders that he has installed however imperfect they are let's pray